Father, thank you so much, God, for being so incredibly good. God, thank you, Lord, even for that. You just have somebody home at the right time, at the right day, God. Lord, you know all things before we ever get to them. You know every bump in the road before we ever approach them. God, you know how to navigate around them if we just follow you and listen, Lord. And Father, many times you may not take us around anything, Father. You take us through the storms of life and through the potholes and through the valleys and through the trials and through the troubles, God. But we have the confidence in your word that you'll never bring us to anything that you're not going to take us through, Father. You'll never bring us to a point, leave us, forsake us. You'll never strand us. You're always there, God. Lord, I thank you, Father, that we can trust you, that we can call on you. Thank you, Father, for that open-door policy that you've given us into the very throne room of God that we can come and talk to you, Father. I thank you for these prayers that you've answered. Lord, we lift these prayer requests up to you and ask you, would you touch each need according, Lord, to their own specifics. Father, I pray you'd meet with us tonight as we look here at your word and the acts of the apostles. God, I pray you'd touch each one of us. Would you teach us? God, I pray you'd strengthen us. I pray you'd grow us in knowledge and in wisdom. Lord, I pray, Father, you'd help us to walk out a better servant. God, I pray you'd grow us in our knowledge of your word. God, I pray you'd bless each and every person in this place tonight, Father. Lord, I pray most of all, may you be pleased with all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Acts chapter 25, we left off last week. Um, we had just got to the part about where um, Festus referred to the, the Sanhedrin, talking about their religion and referred to it as superstition. And I kind of got sidetracked. So that's where we run out of time at last week when we referred to superstition. We looked at in our own lives, if we're not very careful, the Sanhedrin, they were the Jewish elite. They were the religious elite, if you will. But they had gotten so far away from God. In, in, their, in their legalism, I almost want to stop and tell you a story about legalism this week, about a pastor. But I don't have time to give you the whole story. I need to tell you it's a pastor. Y'all, did y'all know we listen to devil music around here? Anyway, it's all free. Um, I'll give you a pastor to pray for because I grew up in that legalistic garbage. I grew up in that stuff that, that would talk about anybody that didn't do it my way. It's our way or the highway. It's garbage. It's God's way or it's wrong. It's all about him. It's all about worshiping him. It's all about serving him. And, and so, so what, what we have here is the, the, the reality of the, the Jewish elite, the religious elite, the Sanhedrin, have gotten so far away from God because they're caught up in their legalism. They're caught up in my way. They're caught up in it has to be done this way. And Jesus told them several times. Jesus himself called them hypocrites, dressed up in all your clothes, trying to look good, making long prayer and pretenses to make everybody else think you're something special, but you're nothing but a bunch of dead men's bones. That's the way Jesus described them. And they've gotten so far away from God here in this text that that a, a worldly person looking at them describes what they believe That's superstitious. God help us to never get so far into legalism, so far off into religion, so far out in left field that the world looks at us and sees our God as just a superstitious creature. That's kind of where they are, and that's where we left off. And if you remember, Festus said, I suppose that they would bring me some good proof. He thought they had some real charges against Paul, and they'd bring some stuff in. It turns out all they had was just a bunch of accusations. And he said, those things are based on their religion. It was something about this man, Jesus. They say he's dead. This guy, Paul says he's not. Now the problem is for Festus is that Festus does not know Jesus, but he does not care. See, that's where a lot of people are in the world today. They don't know Jesus. Some of them don't even know much about Jesus. And that's the case with Festus. And and he is talking to what is probably the, the greatest representative of Christ that has ever lived in the Apostle Paul. 
He's certainly among the greatest if he's not the greatest. And he's face to face with the one that can tell him about salvation, can tell him about how to be saved, but he doesn't care. And that's where a lot of the world, that's what Tim was just talking about. I think he said his name was John. It may have been 20 years ago, the bottom line. You're talking about Jesus and you know, but he doesn't care. I got things I want to do. And that's where a lot of the world is. It's very important that people see Christ in us. It's very important that we live our life as best as we can. Can you live perfect? No. If you could, Christ died for nothing. Can you keep the law? No. If you could, Christ died for nothing. Can, can you do everything exactly according to this book and never make a mistake? No. If you could, Christ died for nothing. But what we can do is the best that we can. What we can do is love people without a cause and pray and ask God to give me a heart like your heart. Help me to love people the way you love people. Help me to pray for the sick the way you pray for the sick. Help me to hurt for the lost the way that you hurt for the lost so much that you climbed up on a cross for them that we can pray and ask God to help us be like Jesus Christ. But Festus, he don't care about none of this stuff. He says, because I doubted such matter of questions, I asked him whether he'd go to Jerusalem in verse number 20 and there be judged of these matters. So now, if you remember, we looked at it, he's like, okay, Okay, he already turned down the Sanhedrin about bringing Paul down to Jerusalem. He goes back up to Caesarea, but now he's at Caesarea. He's like, okay, maybe I should have just carried Paul down there. Maybe that's a good way for, for me to get rid of all this. And what he's trying to do is make himself look good. If you remember to pick up from last week, or if you weren't here, he's having a conversation with Agrippa, King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, the fourth. He's, well, it'd be junior here, but he's actually the fourth as we looked at. He's having this conversation. He's trying to make himself look good. He's trying to make it like he's trying to find justice in this matter and do the right thing uh, with the situation that was handed him. He says, I even offered him this chance to be heard in Jerusalem, but when Paul had appealed to be reserved until the hearing of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I might send him to Caesar. Now, I'm not really sure. I, it's, it's, it wasn't important to me, so I didn't put a lot of study. If you want to know, I'll go back and study and see if I can find out why did he say Augustus and, and Caesar? Because the, that's Nero. That's the emperor of Rome. That's Caesar. That, that's all the same person. So I'm not really sure why in the translation they used the two different names in the same sentence. But I didn't really see it as important. So I didn't put a lot there. But, but it, that Agrippa said to Festus, I would also hear the man myself. And tomorrow, said he, thou shalt hear him. There, there is no doubt that Agrippa, growing up in the house of Herod Agrippa, the one that killed James with the sword and arrested Peter, there's no doubt he's heard a lot about Jesus. Festus may not have, but Agrippa has. He, he, he's been over the Jews. He, he's heard a lot about this man, Paul, too. And he knows that this man, Paul, is the one that is still teaching about this man, Jesus. Now, you, you remember I mentioned last week, we are only 25 years into the New Testament right here. We are only 25 years away from the cross. That means this is still a living testimony. This is not walked by faith and not by sight. This is still a living testimony. All of the apostles are still alive, except for James, who Herod killed with the sword. All the apostles are still alive. The eyewitnesses of the, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and even the ascension all have visual eyewitnesses that saw it. So this is still an eyewitness time of life. Remember, I talked about it on Sunday. Eyewitness is very important. I talked about what we saw in Costa Rica, and I, I spent some time sharing something with you. But that's because I saw that. You can't change that in me. You don't have to believe me. It doesn't matter to me. It's not going to change anything. You can go gossip. You can go say, so you're not going to change what I saw. I cannot change what I saw. I know what I saw. I believe what I saw. I'll tell what I saw. I'll defend what I saw. That's what we have right here. 
We are still in the eyewitness days. We are still within 25 years of the cross right here. And, and Paul is possibly the greatest, if, if not the greatest. He's got to be among the top. He's definitely the most educated of the apostles. I know Matthew was a tax collector, but, but we know from Paul's history and the things he says, he is by far the most educated. He is the most eloquent speaker of all of the apostles. And, and so I, I think that we can pretty well Rest assured that, that Agrippa is pretty excited about this opportunity to get to speak to Paul. And I think that's pretty well defined in what the text says happened on the morrow when Agrippa was come and Bernice, that would be his sister, the princess. It says with great pomp. That's the only time you find that word in the New Testament. There, there is a verb form of that in a couple other places. But it's the only time you find this word. They came with great Pomp and was entered into the palace, of, into the place of hearing with the chief captains and principal men of the city. At Festus's commandment, Paul was brought forth. So this is a meeting of the who's who. I mean, everybody has come to this. You got, you got Festus there. You got Agrippa and the princess, his sister are there. It says that you got uh, the chief captains. There would have been five of those in the city. You got all five of them. They would have been there with all their, their most polished attire on. You, you got the principal men of the city. That would be all of the government officials. So everybody's present at this thing in this all-out effort to impress everybody. I mean, you, you got to feel like here at this meeting in this day that, that purple is the color of the day. Y'all know purple, purple is royalty, right? We've talked about it a lot. You know, um, Thyatira, Lydia, seller of purple, and the reading it was from the jellyfish and the extract. Purple was royalty, period. If you, you, it was a very expensive, it was extremely expensive to buy just an ounce of the dye. So if you had purple cloth, it established royalty. So you kind of feel like this, this was a purple kind of day right here. They showed up in their best attire. They would have had on all their gold jewelry. They would have had on polished brass and silver. All of these officers standing around would have been like Marines in their dress blues. I mean, they have on their best with their metal tags hanging up. I mean, they're, they're sharp. They are dressed up. This is a display trying to impress people. Isn't it amazing? They did all of that for a hearing for the Apostle Paul. That, that's all this day is for. This isn't some big judicial day and everybody's coming. This day is for one reason. We're going to bring this lowly little Jew in and we're going to talk to him. And I say that I feel like Paul has to be a man of small stature because in 2 Corinthians, it talks about that, that he is less than impressive in, in his body size. I'm pretty sure if you look at some things that are said, he's maybe small in stature or whatever. He's not, he's not very impressive to look at. And I guess they thought maybe if they got all dressed up and put on all this stuff, maybe he would be impressed or maybe he'd be intimidated, but they had a lot to learn. They had a lot to learn because he didn't come in the power of color of clothes or brass or silver or gold. He came in the power of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, anointed and filled with the Holy Ghost of God. And the only people who got impressed around there that day was them. They, they came thinking they had something for him. Verse number 24, Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men are here present with us. You see this man about whom all the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here. Crying that he ought not to live any longer. The, the fact is, Paul is innocent of any wrongdoings according to the Roman law. And Festus knows that. There, there may be some 
some little religious squabble going on with the Jews, but there's not even any reasonable proof that he's done anything against Roman law. He clearly hasn't started any riots. He, he clearly isn't an insurrectionist. He's clearly not somebody causing problems. But one thing is obvious. He's done something that ticked them Sanhedrin guys off. That, that's the one thing Festus does. I, I don't know what he did, but, but he's done something that's got their feathers all ruffled and it's got something to do with their religion, with their superstition, as Festus puts it. So, so obviously it's a religious matter, but Paul, it says, appealed to Caesar. He said, when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, that's the governor's own judgment. That, that, that's, that's the same as Pilate about Jesus. I find no fault in this man. I find no guilt in this man. I find nothing in your charges against this man. I can't see where he's done anything wrong. He, he says, when I, had, I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, that he himself appealed to Augustus, I have determined to send him. Festus says, what else can I do? What else can I do? I mean, he's a Roman citizen. He has his right. He's appealed to go to Caesar. So, so I, I've got to send him to Caesar. But here was my problem. I couldn't set him free because if I just set him free, the, the Jews were probably going to kill him anyway. And they were going to start a riot in the city. And, and I, I couldn't punish him because he's a Roman citizen and he hadn't done anything wrong. And if I beat a Roman uncondemned, then I myself am going to be beat and, and probably crucified. So I couldn't do that. I mean, he's probably wishing right about now that he would have packed Paul up with a bunch of soldiers, carried him out of the country and said, if you come back in, that'll be your crime. I'm going to execute you, but you go away. He's probably wishing he would have just carried him out and got rid of him, but he didn't. He chose to hold him. He tried to trick him into going back down to Jerusalem to let the Jews kill him. And now he's got to sell twin rock and hard place. So here, here's the problem that, that Festus faces in, in verse number 26. That he says, I don't have anything to accuse him of. Here's my real problem. He has appealed to Caesar. See, if I had found him guilty and, and I wanted to condemn him, he could have appealed to Caesar and he could have gone to Caesar for an appeal. And I would write out all of the charges against him and he would take his appeal to Rome. But I don't have anything to write. I, I don't have anything to accuse him of. I don't have anything that he's done wrong. Do you realize how incompetent that makes, a, it makes him look, to, to Mephesus look, to have to send him down to Caesar. So, hey, I'm going to send this guy that I inherited was there, and I really don't know what to tell you, but I'm sending him to you anyway. Caesar's not going to be a happy camper. He, he, he is the leader of Rome. He doesn't have time for this stuff. That's why he's got governors out there. He says that, of whom I have no certain thing to write unto my Lord. Wherefore, I have brought him forth before you. See, here's where he comes to Agrippa. He's hoping Agrippa can help him because he knows the Jews. He knows the custom. He knows the traditions. He says, I have brought him specially before thee, O King Agrippa, that after examination, <clears throat> that after examination had, I might have somewhat to write. He said, help me find something to write against this man when I send him to Caesar. For it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a, a prisoner and not with all to signify the crimes laid against him. The problem that Festus has got right here is very real. All the Jews, they have, all they have right here is, according to Festus, is some superstitious issue. They, they've got some kind of religious issue He's definitely broken no Roman law. And if he's broken a, a Jewish law, they're yet to prove it. There, there's just this conversation about Jesus. So if I send him 
to Caesar, I, I'm going to be in trouble. So, so he's basically, he's asking a, a Agrippa right here. See, Agrippa is a man who does know Jewish customs. He does know Jewish beliefs. He does know about Jesus. He does know about Paul. He does know some things about the resurrection. He does know about the Sanhedrin. He, he knows these things. He knows about their laws and he knows about their religious beliefs. So, so he's been asked the question, what am I going to do? Chapter 26, Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art committed to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth the hand, answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all things whereof I'm accused of the Jews. The, the beckoning of the hand, that is an acknowledgement of respect in the day. And if you notice the text, he even refers to him as king. And this is important because I want you to see, remember when basically Paul accidentally insulted the high priest? But he said, I didn't know he was the high priest. Paul shows us he had respect for authority, not for people, but for positions. And, and that is throughout the scripture. The, the Bible tells us that constantly. We're to have respect for those who rule over you, for those who have authority over you. We are to have res respect for positions. And he refers to him as king because Paul has respect for the position. He has no respect for this snake. He's probably kind of about like me. I don't have an ounce of speck of respect under my little finger for that nutcase. Well, I'm sorry. Turn that off. For that guy we got in the White House. But I do have respect and I pray for the presidential office of the United States of America. I pray that somehow God would draw that man. And if that man would be saved and there'd be a U-turn and he would quit this ridiculous garbage that he's doing in this country. And you see this country turn back to God. What an awesome thing it would be to see him saved and call a country to his knees in prayer and call a country back to the things of God. What an example it would be. And it's not above God, but it is a choice. It's a choice he has to make. I, I don't see any difference here. Paul has no respect for the man in the position. But he has all the respect for the position. And he understands that it is biblical to pray for and have respect for, for that position. Well, I just lost all y'all getting off in the White House. I'm sorry. That's, that's why y'all are preaching, not metal. This is the third time the Apostle Paul is going to give his story. Well, it'll be, it'll be the third time we see his story in his road to Damascus experience. Uh, it'll be the second time, though, that, that we see Paul himself tell the story. He explains here why he is pleased to, to be able to give his testimony to somebody like Agrippa. He says, especially because I know thee to be an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me. Patiently, what Paul says to King Agrippa is, you got a minute? I, I appreciate the opportunity. I have full respect and, and, and I appreciate it because I, I know that you understand the customs and the principles and the passions of the Jewish religion. As a matter of fact, he describes him as an expert on, on these matters. So Agrippa should be able to understand the messianic hope of the law and the prophets. Agrippa should be able to understand the hope of the Messiah that, that is to come. And what Paul is hoping is that hopefully he can show him that Christ is the fulfillment of the prophecy so that this man himself become a saved, born again child of the living God. That's always Paul's intention. And he is thrilled to death at the opportunity to get to tell this man who has been a history of blatant murders against the Jews, the one that killed babies and 
kill Jesus or, or you know, put out the law for Jesus and, and, and kill James and tried to kill Peter. And now you have this man here. Paul is, is ecstatic that he has this opportunity to, to witness to this, this group of people. They put all their purple and all their pomp and all their royal coming out to impress. Paul says, man, what an opportunity to preach. Look here, what God's done, give me. I get to preach to all of these people. And right now, there's nothing they can do but listen. Because the king has already given the apostle Paul the floor. And the governor's already given the king permission to do it. So all they can do is listen as Paul begins to share the testimony. He says, now if you want to hear the truth, if you really want to know what this is all about, if you really want to know what they got their back little drawers all wadded up about and you want to know what the Sanhedrin's so bent out of shape about if you really want to know where this started and you want to know what this is all about I'm going to need your patience I, I, I'm going to need you to listen for a minute because I got to back up just a little bit see this this whole thing is about one simple thing and that is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ this whole thing that's in question, everything that they're mad about and everything that I'm here about all revolves around this one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the prophets, scriptures that, that was given. My manner from my youth. This is what Paul starts with his testimony. My manner of life from my youth, which was at first among my own nation at Jerusalem. Know all the Jews. He said, all the Jews know this. All the Sanhedrin know this. Every one of you here that's a Jew knows this. A Grippa, you're even going to know this, which knew me from the beginning if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Paul says there's not a one of them here that don't know that. I'm Pharisee of Pharisees. He wrote from a Roman prison a little bit later on after he gets to Rome and he writes the letter back to the church at Philippi. He said in chapter 3, verse 4, Though also might have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul says they know all that. They know my zeal. They know my family. They know my education. They know my rabbinical training. They know who I was. They know Saul of Tarsus. They, they know all this stuff, and, and they know exactly where I come from. He says that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Then he says in verse 26, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. Paul says, I'm being judged for the hope that God himself gave to our fathers. Unto verse 7, which promised our 12 tribes. So he refers to our. He's talking to Jew. He's making everybody know he, he's a Jew. I'm not just a Roman citizen. He says, our 12 tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused of the Jews. He says, I'm accused because of hope. It is the hope that the Jews have, have always had. This accusation that they're making is no accusation at all. All 12 tribes of Israel have always held on to this hope that there is a Messiah coming. This hope is the distinctive nature of the Jew that sets them apart from all of mankind. Throughout the Old Testament, it is this distinctive hope 
this promise of God that all 12 tribes that, that, that hold on to. He, he says, matter of fact, this word right here where he uses the 12 tribes of Israel, that, that word is a singular word. So even there, Paul uses the word that describes them not as 12 tribes, but as one people. The word that he uses there, what are you, singularizes? Can I make up word? It brings the 12 back into what they are. They're one family of God. They're the Hebrew nation. They're the Jewish people. So, so it's the only time you find this word in the New Testament. The apostle Paul referred to the 12 tribes. So these, these are one people. And this is the hope of one nation. That God would send a savior that would save his people. That was the hope of the 12 tribes. That is the hope of our people. It's what we've always longed for. It's what we've always looked for. It's what the scripture always promises. That God would send a people. I mean, that God would send a, a redeemer that would save us from our sin. That would save us from the penalty of sin. That would save us from the power of sin. That would save us from the permanence of sin. He, he says he, he, God's going to send a, a people. He said he, he gave us this promise all the way back in in Genesis chapter 3, when he promised, he said, he's talking to the serpent. He said, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. He said, that's been done. The, the serpent will have his day, but God's day is bigger and better. God, God, God will take the, the serpent out. See, the Jewish people, they would know that. They would know that they're all Abraham's seed. Every God-fearing Jew from then on down, every God-fearing woman Jew prayed for the day that either, either them or their daughter would give birth to this Messiah that is to come. They knew that he would come through that line. Now, if you look there a little bit later on in Genesis, you find out that, that it moves on. It narrows down to, to um, would be the tribe of Judah. And, and then if you look in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7 and verse 23 both narrows it down that it's going to come from the seed of David. So it takes the Hebrew nation and begins to narrow it down to look, come within the seed of David. But, but Israel's hope is the world's hope. Israel's hope right here lies in the promise that this kinsman redeemer is going to come and save the world. I don't have time to preach on the kinsman redeemer, but if you want something to study, that's a fantastic study. It takes a kinsman redeemer. That's why Christ had to become one of us to purchase us. He had to become like us to pay our debt. He became the, the kinsman redeemer. So he, he narrows it all down and, and he says that Israel was looking our hope was that the Messiah would come. Look at it like this. How many of you right now look with great expectation and believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is going to step out on the cloud. Gabriel will sound the trumpet. There will be a call and the saints of God will rise. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then all of us that are alive and remain shall rise up to meet him in the air. You believe that? Do you look to that with expectation? Do you believe that day is coming? Do you believe that book? Do, do you believe in the second coming? Do you believe that they're the same way? But it's about the first coming. See, what they've rejected is the first. They're still looking for him to come for the first time. But, but what he's saying is we have been looking. They were looking for the Messiah to come the same way we're looking right now for him to come back. They, he said we had this great hope. Uh, that, that he's coming and, and we have this promise where there's things we know about him. We know that he'd be born of a virgin. He'd be born in the city of Bethlehem. He, he did that. 
He, he lived exactly as the scriptures said that he was going to live. He was crucified exactly like the scriptures said. Psalms chapter 22 said, Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones... They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Read the gospel description of the crucifixion. It's all foretold. It's all written in the Psalms before he ever got there. He was buried with the rich. Exactly like the scripture said. Isaiah 53 said he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He made his grave with the wicked. He died with a thief on both sides and, and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence. Neither was there any deceit in his mouth. All according to scripture, he arose from the grave on the third day. All according to scripture. He even prophesied as you Pharisees told him you wanted to see a sign. He said there'll be no sign given except for the, pro as the prophet Jonas spent three days and three nights in the belly of the well. So shall the son of man spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He said that that's the only thing that you're going to get. That's the only sign you're going to get. So, so this word hope, he's using this word hope. He, he's talking to Agrippa. Agrippa knows exactly what he means. Agrippa knows exactly what the hope of the Jew is. They are looking for a Messiah or a, a Redeemer. And the fact that Paul has been arrested and, and accused of the Jews for proclaiming of such it, it is absurd. This is their national hope. This is the hope of, of the people that are there accusing him. So, so this whole hope centers around Jesus, more specifically around the resurrection it's the resurrection that changes us. See, it's no longer national. It's no longer Jew and Gentile. It, it is the resurrection that changes from, from national to, to spiritual, from mortal to, to immortal. It, it is the resurrection that, that changed you and I from, from temporary to eternal. We have eternal life through Jesus Christ. So even though you have the very wealthy Sadducees on the one side who say there is no resurrection, you have the majority who is the Pharisees. And the Pharisees fully believe in the resurrection. And Agrippa sitting there knows all this. This is who Paul's pleading his case to. He says, why should it be, uh, uh, why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? I told you Sunday I watched that, that documentary on the case for Christ. I was brokenhearted by the people they interviewed. So many people that don't believe in God, don't believe in Christ. So many people said, I don't believe there's any way anybody can come back from the dead. So many people said, well, you know, Jesus is probably a good man. So many people said, I believe in God, but not necessarily the God of the Bible. It, it was heartbreaking to sit and, and watch that, that documentary and to see so many people lost and on their way to hell. And, and they're saying, well, I, I don't believe anybody could come back from the dead. Well, then you can't believe in God. I mean, you got a God who can create billions and billions of stars, span them across the heaven, put them in place and tell us the, tell us the number and call them all by name. You got a God who can create thousands of galaxies that we know of and we can probably just see a fraction of it. 
You got a God that can create an atom, a cell that, that is a microscopic organism. And there is a universe going on inside of that microscopic organism. You got a God that can take 60 trillion of those and put them together and create a human body that does all the different functions and breathe the breath of life into it and make his creations real. How hard can it be to believe he can bring you back? If, if he created you and gave you life in the first place, how hard can it be to believe that Jesus Christ, the same God that made us and put the breath of life in us to start with, can breathe the breath of life into us again or give us an eternal life hereafter? So, so, so that, that's what he's saying. He's, he, he's pleading his case. He says, verily, I thought with myself. This is Paul. I thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I thought with myself. See, that is a testimony of every unsaved religious person. They want it done their way. It's all about them. Even Naaman the leper. Remember when he heard that, that his wife's handmaid said, there's a man in my country. He could cure you. And, and he went to Elijah to get the, prop, to get the, the leprosy healed. And, and he had his own mind made up of how this ought to happen. Y'all remember? He sent him word, go dip in the Jordan River seven times. He's ticked off. I got better rivers in my own homeland. I got, I got better rivers where I come from. Why would I go get in that old muddy Jordan River? He had his own idea. See, that's the way we go to God a lot of times. We go to God. We need something done. We need leprosy healed. But we got our own idea of how to do it. We, God, we need some financial blessings. We got our own idea of how to do it. God, we need to get out of this mess. We got our own idea of how to do it. No, when we go to God, we need to go say, God, here I am. I need your plan, your will, your way. Paul said, I thought with myself. I ought to do things contrary to this Jesus Christ. See, that, that, that's what's wrong with religion. I want to try to get, if I'm going to be about three or four minutes late. Y'all good with that? I, I want to at least get to this one verse right, right over here. Paul says, here's my problem. I thought within myself. See, I fully believed that what I was doing was helping God. I truly believe that, that trying to get rid of these Christians, trying to get rid of these ones who proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, trying to stamp out the name of Jesus Christ, I truly thought that everything I was doing was trying to help God. Matter of fact, when you see that right there, he says, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, it's the last of seven times that you see that name used in the Acts of the Apostles. We saw it in chapter two when Peter used it for the first time. This is the seventh and final time that we see this name, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, but when I was Saul of Tarsus, I had the zeal to stamp out this name. And there's not a Jew here that can deny that. The Sanhedrin knew that. The Jews, everybody there knew it to the Romans. They're sitting back. The ones from Caesarea, they're like, man, this is a bad dude. I, I, did, I didn't know it was like that. They're learning something, but the Jews not. The, the Jew already knows all this stuff, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. Many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. I punished them off in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. I tried to make them curse their God. I tried to make them deny the Lord Jesus Christ. I compelled them to blaspheme, being exceedingly mad against them. Paul says, I hated them guys. I persecuted them, even under strange cities. He says, I went looking for them. I did everything I could. I had letters from the chief priest. You guys know that. You're the one who gave me the letter. He told the Sanhedrin, you know exactly who I am. I'm the guy you sent to do your dirty work. 
You're the one that wanted to kill the Christians, but you don't have blood on your hands. I'm the guy you sent because I didn't mind getting blood on my hands. I'm the one that went from city to city looking for them. I'm the one that tried to find them. I'm the one that was trying to get rid of the name of Jesus Christ. I'm the one that's trying to stamp it out. I'm the one that grew up in your religion. I'm the one that you shaped, molded, and trained and taught me to be that way. And that's how I was. That's exactly how I was. But then one day I was on my way to Damascus, minding my own business. I was going to do exactly what you guys sent me to a Sanhedrin. Stay, look up here and pay attention. Don't be looking down at the floor. I was going to do exactly what you guys, Agrippa, they sent me. They told me to go to Damascus. I was on my way, letter in hand, signed by them. And the stamp on it was of the chief priest. Had a seal with his stamp on it. And I was headed to Damascus to go kill me some Christians. I was headed over there to, to beat and to persecute them. He said, you know, the thing that amazed me about those guys is I tried to make them curse the name of Jesus Christ. I tried to make them deny and they chose to die. Rather, rather than deny this name Jesus, they chose to die and maybe hate him even more. Because there was something about this name Jesus that they would not deny. And I was on my way to Damascus to get rid of some more of them and try to stamp out this name Jesus. When all of a sudden, the bearer of the name shone in front of me. The bearer of the name Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, showed up like a bright light from heaven. And all the men that was with me saw the light. All the men that were with me heard the noise. But Jesus was talking to me. Now that's a terrible place to have to leave off. But it's a great place to have to leave off. I wanted to get to there because this is where Paul's testimony turns. This is where he's been talking about my past. All that. I, how many of you got a past? How, how many of, of you are glad, but one day I was on my way to Damascus. Well, I don't know where you was headed, but it was a Damascus in your world. Paul said, I was on my way to do your dirty work, Jews, to do what you were sending me to do. And then you got those two words, but God had another plan. But God had a way of salvation. But God had a son. His name was Jesus Christ. And he is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophet. He is the fulfillment of everything you guys have been looking for. He is who you sought. He is the Messiah. And Paul is telling him, now he is my Lord. He is my Savior. And he's going to go on here for a little bit. And it's going to work out how it works out. But Lord willing, we'll pick up right there next time. I hate having a clock. I like Sunday morning. Y'all can leave when you have to, but I don't have to leave till I'm done. Father, thank you so much, God, for being so good. Thank you for this book. Thank you, God, for our road to Damascus. I thank you, God, for every person sitting in this place right now, that there was a day when we were on that trail. We were out there running from Christ. We were lost. We didn't want anything to do with it. We talked about Christians. We laughed about church until one day. One day with all of your grace and all of your love and all of your kindness and all of your mercy and, and, and your complete love wherewith you loved us fully and completely. Lord, you climbed up on that cross and you made a way. And one day in all of our field, you stopped us dead in our tracks and said, now's the time. Will you take it? Thank you, Lord, that we sit here together, brothers and sisters in Christ, redeemed of the Lamb of God. Thank you, Father, for loving us in spite of us. I pray you'd help us as we go out to serve you and to be pleasing to you in everything we do. We love you, God. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.